It's Father's Day weekend, and uh, obviously not everyone in the house is a father. Uh, not everyone in the house is a man. Um, but the beautiful thing is that spiritual motherhood and fatherhood is the call of every disciple of Jesus. It is a universal call. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has designed you and called you and equipped you to be a mother or a father in the Lord to people. And um, even though it is a universal call, a lot of us never really answer that call. I think we need to be real for a minute. And I'm talking about believers. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about believers not answering the call. Believers who either get consumed with a very individualistic, self-centered faith, the it's just between me and God kind of faith, which, by the way, is not biblical at all. Hate to burst your bubble for anyone who's just been kind of making that excuse your whole life. My faith's just between me and God. No, it's not. It was never meant to be that way. Amen. Or perhaps you have guided others in the faith, but never really taken on the Father, heart of God. And you say, well, what do you mean by that, Seth? Well, Paul says that there's a difference. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians identifies a very clear difference between being guides and fathers, and that's how I want to begin this morning is to share from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. It says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Many of you know that fatherlessness is an epidemic in our nation. You know, there's a lot of things that are really loud in the news and the media right now, and some of them for great reasons of great merit. There are some social issues that need to be talked about. There are some, some things that are at the forefront, and I don't want to belittle any of those things. But I do want to say that sometimes fatherlessness sneaks under the radar when it comes to the social awareness of just how much of an impact it is making in our nation and in our culture. I want to read some, some figures to you this morning that will hopefully make that real for you if you do not have a realization yet of just how much fatherlessness impacts our world. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 24.7 million children, that's 33%, live without their biological father. That's one-third of children in the U.S. living without their biological father. Let's just, let's just let that soak in for a minute. 18.3 million children, or one in four, live without biological step or adoptive father in the home. One in four doesn't have any of those. 71, now, now those are the numbers that tell you how widespread fatherlessness is, but I want to read some numbers to you that talk to you about the effects of that. And this is, what, this is what's very sobering. Because you could say, well, a lot of people don't have dads. No big deal. No, very big deal. 71% of all high school dropouts come from a fatherless home. 71% of all pregnant teenagers come from a fatherless home. 85% of children with behavioral disorders come from a fatherless home. 
50% of all homeless and runaway children, fatherless home, 85% of youth in prison, 85% of youth in prison come from a fatherless home and 63% of youth suicides come from a fatherless home. The effects of fatherlessness are catastrophic, catastrophic. There is a way that God has designed the family, his design, his way. And when we don't live according to that way, we see very, very sad, tragic repercussions. God's way is better. I'm going to say that again because, okay, 909, we're going to have our talk. I know you faithful. I know you my Bible readers. I know you my, you my people who've walked in the faith. But when I say something like that, I need, I need you to respond, okay? Thank you. Appreciate it. I need to wake up still too. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. God's way is better. And God has designed the family in a very specific way. And when we deviate that from that and say, well, all ways that family works together is just the same. No, it's not. No, it's not. God's way is the best way. He has designed the family so intricately. And by the way, the family, each member of the family, each familial relationship is a reflection of his image and a part of how he relates with us. Have you ever noticed that? His way is better. Now, unfortunately, the negative effects that apply to physical fatherhood also apply to spiritual fatherhood, spiritual fatherlessness. And I believe that God wants to impart the Father's heart to each one of us this weekend, male or female. I'm just saying a Father's heart, uh, that you would be a father or a mother in the Spirit so that we can meet this generation who is in so, des- in so much desperate need of fathers and mothers who will come beside them. I believe he wants to give us that this morning. And I would just encourage you, this moment, if you're here just like, well, I'm just getting my little church before Father's Day celebrations, you need to wake up. God has something for you today. And this might be the change in trajectory, the change of direction that is needed in order for your family, spiritual or physical, to thrive. Will you receive it this morning? If God was said, if God came to you this morning and said, I want to give you my heart, would you receive it? Would you say, yes, I want to have your heart for people? Come on, 909. There we go. Church. I love it. Thank you. This message is called The Prodigal Heart. And um, we're going to read from Luke chapter 15 because I believe it's one of the greatest depictions of the Father heart of God. You're probably pretty familiar with it, but I challenge you to let it stay fresh in your heart because it is absolutely revelatory of who God is. Now, just a little bit of context. Luke 15 begins with telling how tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. Hopefully we know by now the tax collectors of that day were not the IRS. There's nothing wrong with working for the IRS per se. These tax collectors were hated because they worked for Rome and they were known for cheating and defrauding people. They were known for manipulating and taking advantage. That's why they're mentioned among sinners because they were jacked up. The Pharisees criticized Jesus for receiving sinners and eating with them. To eat with someone was a very important thing. It wasn't as casual as it is in our culture. To eat with someone was to say we're good. 
Jesus then goes on to rebuke the Pharisees in a series of three parables. I love Jesus's way. He just sneaks in these arrows that just cut right to the heart. And here in Luke chapter 15, he does it with three parables that we would know as the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Each of these parables displays the heart of God as one of mercy and of compassion, seeking the lost and rescuing them in kindness. Can we stand for the reading of the word? Thank you, Lord. We're going to start in verse 11. Remember Luke chapter 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, I'm going to say that one again. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf And kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. May of 2016... My uh, mom and I got to go to a really cool conference down in L.A. Uh, It was a conference called Heaven Come. 
put on by uh, Bethel Music. It was the first one they ever did, the first Heaven Come conference. It was transformative, beautiful time, unforgettable. One of the sessions, uh, there was this guy who I've come to love and very much admire from afar. His name's Jeremy Riddle. And he was teaching on fatherhood and on sonship. And uh, during that message near the end of it, I heard the voice of God. I felt that, that still small whisper, that impression. And I heard him say, I'm giving you a father's heart. And in the moment I went, yes, yes, I would love that. I would love that, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I want that. I, w- I was rejoicing. I was, I was, honestly, it just set me on like cloud nine for the rest of the conference. I'm like, God's going to get, God's giving me a father's heart. Little did I know that over the next six months to a year, probably a year, he would give me opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to walk out this father's heart that he said he was giving me. And I fell flat on my face over and over and over again. I was teeming with insecurity. I was teeming with with comparison and competition and being afraid of other people's greatness and assuming bad about other people and their intentions. Well, if they're great, that just means they couldn't possibly have good intentions. I was tormented inside. And I remember coming to the end of that season, or I, I guess somewhat of the end of that season, going, God, do you remember back in May? Remember that time when you said you were giving me a father's heart? I don't have anything that looks anything like that. I am an older brother to a T. What in the world was that about? You said you were giving me a father's heart, and now I've gone through all this. And once again, I heard that still small voice. Yes. And this is how I do that. See, he showed me what a mess I was and how much I didn't have this heart that he said he was giving me. And then in that moment, he began to lead me out of that place ever so gently, just like he does. And say, now you saw that it's I'm the one who gives the father's heart. And I'm gonna show you how to do that. So I've been on this journey and I fall short. I still get insecure. How about you? I still feel this competitive edge with other people. How about you? I compare myself. I question people's intentions. Where were they coming from? But God is changing me. And, uh, and I believe that he wants to change us in this room in this way. See, if you, if you take a moment to think about it, I think you'll agree with me that our culture teaches us to be a lot more like older brothers than fathers. The mentality is you go and get yours. It's all about self-care. Get on your grind. Beat out the next guy. Be, it's about you. You, you, you. How you can make you better. You good. You better you. We can, and then that leads us to compete and to compare with such an unhealthy mentality, whether consciously or, or unconsciously. It limits our impact and our influence because we are consumed with selfishness. How are you going to touch others when it's all about you? And I'm saying that because that's where I was. I want to go back to the story that Jesus told about the father and the older brother and the younger brother. And, and I want us to, to take a look at the parallels in this juxtaposition 
Logan, that means like a, a comparison, right? <laughs> Logan always gets on my case about using words like that. Between the father and the older brother. See, older brothers work to earn their position and expect to be rewarded while fathers know their position and they live confidently from it. See, in verse 29, the, younger, the, the older brother, was, he was miffed. And he came and he, look, how, look at all these years I have served you. Didn't I earn your delight? Didn't I earn your celebration? Why didn't you throw a party for me? I've been good this whole time. I never once disobeyed you. Well, yes, you, you did. You're just good at hiding it and you know how to put it on a face, but we won't go into that. <laughs> See, the father's heart is not one of striving, but one of confidence in our identity. It's not about an unhealthy self-deprecation. Oh, I'm nothing and I'm just worthless. And that's not it. That's not humility. That's jacked up too. It's a confidence that is derived from our relation to him. I'm God's child. So that means I mean something. Our value is, is derived from what he's already done. Not from what we can do. We must teach our sons and daughters, biological and spiritual who they are and what their inherent value is. Feel me, church. There's a lot of kids and a lot of adults who have grown up with a performance mentality because we have parents, we as parents have put that in them. Hear me. Hear me today. This is a warning. This is, a, this is an admonition. This is a, maybe you're doing great with this and this is just a little bit, keep doing great. But when are you proud of your kids? When do you delight in them? Is it before or after they've gone and done something you like? Because a lot of times our mentality is, is we wait for a good behavior and then we go, oh, I'm so proud of you. I take great delight in you. You did such a good job. And there's a place for that. But what it can do is it can cultivate this misunderstanding of our relation to God. The Christian life is not... I do good and that gets me close to dad. The Christian life is I get close to dad and from that proximity, good things flow from it. I just want to, I just want to ask you, is that how you are with your biological and spiritual kids? Do they know that you delight in them? And then does their life flow from that or the other way around? Working like they always need to work for your affection, your attention, your delight, your pride. Just a question. Older brothers believe that when others receive, it means there is less available for them. So they actually feel elevated when others are brought down. While fathers know there is plenty to go around and find joy in elevating and promoting others. You see, the older brother goes, you never even gave me a young goat. And now you give him the fattened calf. The father goes, it was fitting that we should celebrate him. Come on, son. You're always with me. All that I have is yours. See, the Father's heart rests in the abundant resources and blessings of God. You know, in the, in, in, in the kingdom of man and in this, in, in this earthly realm, there are scarce resources. Scarcity is a real thing. That's how economics works, supply and demand. We operate in this, in this concept of scarcity. 
But when we try to apply the economics of man and the math of man to the kingdom of God and the way that he hands out gifts and the way that he hands out blessing and the way that he hands out delight and the way that he hands out anointing, we get it all mixed up. You see, if God walks in the room today and he's got, wow, that was cool. I like that. Thank you, Jess. If God walks in the room today and he's, and he's got 10 lima beans and every one of you has a mason jar and all of a sudden he's got 10 lima beans of the gifting of, of healing, he comes over to Logan and he gives him four. Then the rest of the room's panicking. How on earth did he just give him four of the 10 lima beans of healing how is he going to have enough to go around? Because I know that 10 minus four is only six and there's still a bunch of people left. And God goes, wrong He said, here's how I operate. I bring 10 lima beans. I give Logan four. Guess how many I'm left with? 10. The father's heart knows that our God is a God of abundance and he does not have limited resources. We must teach our sons and daughters their gifts and purposes. And, and that when, when God makes someone else great, it doesn't take an ounce away of what he's done. He's going to do in you. Not one ounce. We've got to stop teaching our kids that they need to beat out the next person in order to be great. No, they don't. God has plenty of greatness to go around. Plenty. No one needs to be cut down for me to be lifted up. He can lift us all up. He's very strong. Older brothers are critical and assume the worst, while fathers are gracious and believe the best. See, in verse 30, the older brother, he goes, who this son who, who, who spent your wealth on prostitutes, devoured your wealth on prostitutes. You see, you know, in the verses before, I see a lot about reckless living, but I don't see anything about prostitutes. You know what the older brother was doing right there, I believe, based on what I can see? He was assuming. You know what assuming does? I'm not going to quote it because we're in church, but it does that. And then I love the opposite, the opposite response of the father. You see the son, the younger son, he was all prepared with his little speech to come back to the father and explain and, 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 and say, okay, um, you don't even have to restore me as a son. You can just restore me as one of your servants. And I know I did really bad. And if I could just be on your property and, and just live like one of your servants. And he only gets to begin his little speech. And the father goes, huh? Bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes, bring the fattened calf. My son is home and it's time to party. The opposite effect. The older brother was assuming things he didn't even know negatively about the, the, the younger brother while the father wouldn't even let him finish explaining. <sighs> Who are you? Who am I? The father's heart is one of grace and believing the best about others gives the benefit of the doubt rather than being suspicious and accusatory. We must teach our sons and daughters that love believes all things, love hopes all things, love bears all things, and then we must model it for him. You see, I love the charismatic movement. I've been a part of it my whole life, and I'm very thankful. But something that's a little jacked up in this charismatic movement we have is a misinterpretation of the, this thing called the gift of discernment. You see, Seth, I have the gift of discernment, which means I can see people's hearts and their intentions. First of all, the gift of discernment is another translation of the gift of distinguishing between spirits, and that's what it is. And if you think that it means you can see people's hearts, you're dead wrong. Man looks upon the appearance, and God looks upon the heart. 
I hey, look, if you have the gift of discernment, I'm glad. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad. We need that gift. But it's for distinguishing between spirits. Now, it is. Some people be like, I have the gift of discernment. I'd be like, no, you have the gift of assumption. You have the gift of assumption. Hey, you know why I can speak this right now? Because I was the worst of them all. I was the worst of them all, thinking I knew people's hearts and their bad intentions and all that. And one, time, one day, God, uh, I wouldn't say he smacked me upside the head, but you know, he does have a rod. And he was like, Seth, what are you doing? Even, even, even if you did get an impression about something nasty in someone's heart, I have not called you to be a thermometer. I've called you to be a thermostat. What you doing going calling out all ugly? Anyway, that's a soapbox. And it stems from how evil, the, how evil the, the evil was in my heart in that regard. Bless you if you have the gift of discernment, but it does not mean that you know the heart of man. Older brothers miss precious moments because they are consumed with jealousy and insecurity, while fathers are able to live each moment to the fullness and they know how to celebrate. I think we could do better there, church. We should not be known as the wet towels of society. We have, the, we have the truth that is most worthy of celebration in all the earth. We should be good at celebrating. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. I mean, have you seen how many times that command is rejoice? And we're just like, well, I'm just, you know, waiting on the Lord to come back and deliver me from this terrible, evil, rotten place. <laughs> come on, man. The Father's heart is present and attentive to the beauty of what's happening right now. It knows how to enjoy the moment in every season, wherever it finds itself. We must teach our sons and daughters not to fret so much about the future or about how hard or, 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 or struggling or stressful it seems right now. You know why? For a lot of my life, I was just thinking in finish lines and thinking, you know, whenever I get to this spot, then I'll really be able to live in fullness and I won't, and I, and I won't be so stressed out or this life won't be so hard. You know, maybe when I can finally drive, then I can get myself around. Maybe when I graduate high school, then I'll have some independence. Maybe when I graduate college, I can get a ca good career. Maybe when I get married, then I'll finally be happy. Maybe when I have kids. You know where that's from? That is from Hell. That, pers that perspective that, we, that we're always chasing, that's from hell. And you know what it does? It keeps us from enjoying the fullness of the moment right here where God is. That's where he is. He's in the present. <laughs> He's right here. And that lie stops us from enjoying every moment. And you know, you, you, you know when I think I really sobered up? I think I sobered up a little bit whenever I got, I'm not talking about actual alcohol. Although that's good. It's good to sober up too that way. But I really sobered up in this way of thinking a little bit when I got married. I realized, Seth, you've been waiting for finish lines too long. Your life ain't ever going to be perfect. And then it hit me real hard whenever I had, we had our son. And I realized that in, I was starting to do it again in my head. Oh, isn't it, is it going to be cool when he starts walking? Isn't it going to be cool when he starts talking? Isn't it going to be cool when he has his first day of school? Isn't it going to be cool when he can play sports together? And I just felt this immediate Boom. Dad walked in the room, this dad. You stop it right now. You enjoy every moment you have with your son. You live, you live in the moment. You live in the moment. Fa the father knows how to live in the moment and celebrate, let me tell you. Now, this story is often called the prodigal son. 
in the heading above the passage because the younger son's wasteful and reckless spending. But I want to look at another definition of prodigal today. Yielding abundantly. Giving something on a lavish scale. Yeah, I know that the younger son displayed some of the negative aspects of how we understand the word prodigal. But I would argue in the most true and most redemptive sense of the word that it was the father who was the true prodigal. Think about it. The father gave the son's inheritance early, highly irregular. The father ran to the son upon his return. Not appropriate. Not appropriate for his culture, not appropriate for his status. The father gave a ring and a robe to the son as if he was returning from an honorable trip. But he was with the pigs. And he came from a Jewish background, which means you don't hang out with the pigs. If you're a pig farmer, praise the Lord, that's nothing wrong with it. But in this, for the sake of this parable, it's not okay. The father had the fattened calf killed to celebrate the son when the fattened calf was only meant for the day of atonement. One day a year, they would slay the fattened calf, but the father went. See, I love, oh, I love, I love Jesus because he comes and he says, the minute your tradition starts to encroach upon my love, I'm throwing it out. I'm throwing it out. As soon as your tradition starts to encroach on my love, it's gone. It loses its value. It makes the word of God of no effect. And we see the father do this with the fattened calf right here. He goes, I know that's the tradition, but my son's home. We got to celebrate. The father threw a huge party when the son should have been either rejected or quietly received in shame. It was the father who had the true prodigal heart. I still struggle with this older brother mentality from time to time. I mean, these things flare up and I'm like, oh, that is so ugly. Won't you get out of me? God's doing a good work. He's doing a good work in me. He's not done yet. He's not close to done yet. I got a long way to go. Let's be real. But he's doing it. And he'll do it for you too. He'll change you if you let him. Do you want to be changed? I mean, sometimes I think that, sometimes I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, if you come to church and you don't want to be changed, what? well, I'm glad you're here, but you... It's kind of the point. He equipped the saints for the work of the ministry so that the saints might mature into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Let me just tell you something. You ain't in the fullness of the stature of Christ yet, y'all. And neither am I. If you're breathing, you should be changing. I just want to give you a few simple things of how I believe that God has been changing me. Just a few nuggets, real, real simple, real quick. Number one, ask. That you would ask God, this is real simple. You would ask God, reveal to me how you think about me. Reveal to me how you think about others. Teach me to think about others how, how you think about them. He'll do it. It's, it's not always the funnest thing, by the way, y'all. Because it's going to kill off your flesh. And that's painful. Getting flesh cut off is not, it doesn't feel good. People are like, I just want to be in the spirit. I don't want no more flesh. Well, I want that too, but you better get ready for some pain. It's good pain, but it's pain. The next is surrender. We've got to surrender insecurity, pride, selfish ambition, jealousy, bitterness, overcompensation, and striving. You say, Seth, that's easy to say. How do you surrender? Well, first you need to admit it. 
call it out. See, I can't take something out of my pocket and put it at the feet of Jesus until I admit that it's in my pocket. I don't have that going on in my life. I've surrendered everything to Jesus. You living in denial. Number three, take every thought captive. See, I used to think that this scripture, when Paul talks about it, it meant just change the subject in your mind. (laughs) It ain't that. I tried that for a while. It ain't that. No, if you read the whole part of this passage, it talks about taking every thought captive and then going and destroying every thought that would rise itself against the knowledge of God. God has commissioned us and empowered us to be the gatekeepers of your mind, our minds. And so when the thought comes in that you would begin to assume the worst about someone, when you would be competitive, when you would start comparison, when you start comparison, comparing English, you have the authority given to you by Jesus to be the gatekeeper and say, thought, where is your root? What are you doing here? You don't belong here. I'm putting you in shackles and I'm taking you out. You actually have the authority to do that. Jesus has given it to you. Number four, celebrate and promote. This one's tough. Celebrate and promote, not yourself, others. Celebrate and promote the people who you, you're questioning about their intentions. Celebrate and promote people who maybe are in the same field of work as you or, some, or do something great that you want to do great. Celebrate and promote them. How do you do that? Say good things about them to their face and to, each, and to other people. You might, you, and you might be going, well, Seth, that sounds ingenuine if they bother me. Them bothering you ain't got nothing to do with genuineness or authenticity. You're a son or a daughter. They're a son or a daughter. Being genuine and authentic is being true to who you are, not about how you feel about someone. Your feelings are passing, and they might be all flesh. That ain't being authentic. Well, I need to be authentic. I need to just do what I feel. Give me a break. You know what that leads people into? Prison or the grave. And the last one is a little bit extreme, but I'm telling you, you do it and you watch. You give. Yes, your time. Yes, your attention. Yes, your effort. But I'm talking about money. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about money and I'm talking about physical gifts. You, and you're like, Seth, what? Yes, give them to people that you don't jive with and that you feel competitive against and that make you feel insecure. Seth, what? That is so crazy. What's that going to do? Oh, you know, well, there's this guy. His name's Jesus. He said, where your treasure is, their heart will be also. And you're like, well, that's a weird application of that scripture. No, feel me. Have you ever noticed that when you, st- when you start investing in a company, all of a sudden you start following them in the news, you start buying their apparel, you start defending them in conversation. You're like, why am I defending this corporation? Oh, because I invested some money into it. You know why? Because where your treasure is. Let me, just, let me just give you a tip in life. You don't like someone? Start giving to them. And you're like, what will that do? Oh, just watch. God will reorient your heart toward them. You're like, no, that's, that's a life cheat code, just so you know. And it's for real. 